Hi, and a warm welcome to the new Synaptic Tales podcast. I'm your host, Emma Hancocks, a technical vet advisor from TVM UK, a Domes Pharma brand. And I'm here in collaboration with Dr. Mark Lowry of Movement Referrals. I'm sure you're all familiar with Mark's name, but just by way of introduction. Mark qualified from the University of Cambridge before working in first opinion small animal practice. Following an internship at the Royal Veterinary College, he moved to the University of Glasgow to complete a residency in veterinary neurology. Mark worked for several years at a leading multidisciplinary centre near London, then as clinical director for another multidisciplinary referral centre in the East Midlands. Mark has a master's degree on steroid-responsive meningitis arteritis in dogs and has a particular interest in management of movement disorders, inflammatory brain and spinal disease and feline neurology. He is veterinary consultant to the International Society of Feline Medicine, the ISFM, and was awarded, finally, the prestigious National Prize of Petsan Vet of the Year in 2022. That is quite some introduction, Mark. Welcome. How are you? Sorry to make you read all that out. Thank you very much. No, all's good today, and it's nice to be in this room. Good, good. For those that don't know, Mark has recently opened a new independent referral centre in the Northwest with four of his orthopaedic veterinary specialists, colleagues, maybe also friends, I think. Tell us a little bit about movement referrals. How's it going? Oh, it's exciting. Yeah. I could talk about this all day. So Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> it was set up by five of us in total. The other four are well-known veterinary specialists in orthopaedics. We want to provide sort of high quality but efficient specialist referral services. We obviously just concentrate on orthopedics and neurology, and they're two of the most common reasons for referrals. We're able to offer common referral procedures such as TPLO, patelloluxation, don't ask me about them, <laughs> and spinal surgery at really reasonable prices. Given the dramatic consolidation of recent years in the veterinary world and the importance of GP vet recommendations in the referral process, I suppose it's fair to say there's been a reduction in competition and significant price inflation. So we really hope to provide more choice at better value and aim to objectively demonstrate our value through measuring and publishing our outcomes. That's brilliant. I think it's important for owners to know what they can expect when they take their dog for surgery. What is the likely outcome going to be? And if we can publish what we've done in the past, they've got quite clear guidelines on that. We've had a great few months. We've not been open long got big plans ahead and we abide by the statement of getting it right first time yeah so that's one of the reasons something like canine epilepsy that we're talking about today is so important as i feel it's that first meeting that can dictate the direction of an owner's decision and the direction that things might take in the future absolutely and i think having both that neurology and that orthopedic influence is really useful because it's so easy in first opinion practice to sometimes misdiagnose these so I guess it's great to see or have that influence of your colleagues as well and have both of those kind of inputs and you can all look at cases together sometimes. The two married together brilliant yeah so a number of times we'll see something that we feel is orthopedic and it becomes neurological yeah and vice versa so it's great and as you said earlier on I'm working with my mates that's yeah. always a good thing. Yeah. It's always good fun. You always have to have fun when you're at work. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant though, Mark. We're so lucky to have you here. Our new podcast will focus on how to manage neurology cases in first opinion practice, hopefully offering you some tips and tricks that we've both learned along the way. Over the first few episodes, we're going to introduce you to TVM's new smart approach to epilepsy and how to apply this to some real life cases. 
Some of you may have seen this already in Lunch and Learns. So if you haven't already, you can always book those via our website as well. The aim of the SMART approach to epilepsy is to help you guide conversation in first opinion practice. So it's not really anything that you as vets don't know in practice, but it's just there as a reminder. SMART is of course an acronym because we all know how much marketers love an acronym and stands for speak, measure, advise, realistic and tailor. So that's going to be our focus for the next few episodes. This has been largely based on some recent work that was published at the beginning of the year in the vet record. So from authors Amy Pagan, Zoe Belshaw, Holger Volk and Rowena Packer, which was the first to look at how owner perspectives of their vet and their vet owner bond impacts upon decision making and ultimately how this impacts upon clinical outcomes for epilepsy. And this is why speak and communication is at the beginning of that SMART approach, because it's so important, yet honestly is quite often overlooked in practice. I think I can hold my hands up and say, I always looked at the numbers, to be honest. This is something that we had discussed the first time we met, wasn't it, Mark, actually, that kind of communication and time in practice is one of the biggest hurdles. Time. Yeah, time. There just isn't enough time. There isn't, isn't really isn't, no. And these cases don't come in when you've got lots of time. They're inevitably going to come in when you've got 10 other patients to see, the waiting room's full to bursting, dogs are attacking each other. You can imagine the scene. But the owner, when they first come in, they obviously in the very recent past witnessed their dog have a fit, which is such a scary thing Absolutely. to see. So you're suddenly in this position of counselling as well as preparing them for what's ahead. And you've probably got five, 10, maybe 15 minutes if you're lucky. If you're lucky, I was going to say. <laughs> so I think if you're able to have a really long period of time to sit down with these owners, it makes a huge difference. And I'm sure as you're all listening to this, you probably think, I don't have that. I don't have that time. So signposting is really helpful here to get an owner to know where to look to get the information they need because you're not going to be able to provide it in the time that you've got. Yeah. I think there's a role for all members of the practice here. So the owner's phoned up, they've said my dog's had a fit and they want to book in to see the vet, but the receptionist there, the person answering the phone can help a little bit. So actually we've got some information on this and you can direct them to that information, whether it's something on your own website, some leaflets, indeed TVM could provide information around Absolutely. this yeah. to support these clients. I think that really helps just to settle them down while they're waiting for that appointment or even while they're waiting in the waiting room. Yeah. It can help enormously. The other thing that's omitted is owners aren't prepared with what's ahead. They're coming in, having seen their dog have a fit, and they never want to see that ever again. Yeah. And that's not realistic. Mm -hmm. We can't do that. If we could, that would be amazing. Owners need to be ready that there's going to be a lot more fits ahead, most likely. And the most important thing that's never, ever said, if we are dealing with epilepsy, which we'll assume here this is a dog that's had its first fit and it's got epilepsy, it's a progressive condition. It's yeah. going to get worse and worse. Now, that's miserable. Yeah. And I think as vets, we don't want to say that. We don't want to be the bearers of bad news in that stressful situation, do we? But it was certainly something that was picked out, actually, of that paper that I mentioned that actually being realistic with those owners and having that frank conversation up front was one of the, even if they don't want to hear it, is one of the positive outcomes from that paper. So it's, as I said, it's stuff that you do know, but it's just putting that into 
perspective a little bit as well. And if you're that honest vet that gives that information, that's what's going to help that bond between you and the client. Yeah. Because they'll, they're, you're not telling the owner something they want to hear. You're telling them something they need to hear. And they may not take it well. They may take it great. But then they'll go away, have a think about it and say, you know what, my vet was really honest from the get-go. And that's going to put you absolutely on the right grounding for the future. So they know that you're not a miracle worker, but you're there for them and you can help advise them through it. So yeah. that is so important right yeah. from the beginning. Yeah. You mentioned that there was a role for kind of other members of the veterinary staff. You picked up the front of house staff there, and I think it is really useful for them to at least have that kind of triage type advice as well. When they first get that phone call, it just, again, instills that confidence. But again, something in this paper is suggesting that owners like to talk to the nurses as well and maybe confide a lot in them, some things that they might not confide in their vets. So actually, and we know that nurses are, are brilliant at doing their nurse clinics. They will often do things like OA clinics and things like that for us. Then it's unfortunate that I don't see sometimes a lot of epilepsy type clinics where I think actually they could get involved. What do you think about that? Well, I think that's vital. So I've mentioned the receptionist, but yeah, the nurse, what can the nurse do? So much. So you've got that owner, they've turned up in the waiting room, their dog's had a fit, potentially it's still having a fit. We've got to remember that. So triage, absolutely. I think if there's a veterinary nurse available, you can bring the owners and the dog to one side and have a chat with them. If the dog's actively fitting, well, clearly the role of the nurse is to bring the dog through and make sure it receives that veterinary attention with the vet immediately. So that's easy. We know that. I think everyone will be familiar with that. But in the scenario where the dog stopped fitting, the owner's probably still panicking. And I think for the nurse to take them to one side, reassure them. But something that isn't done much, and I think this is where the nurse can help, is just to get information from the owners as to what it is they've seen. Yeah. Now, a vet can do this, but they haven't got much time. So you don't want to spend a lot of the veterinary consultation talking about how the fit looked because you want to cut to the chase and yep. get to the nitty gritty of what's ahead. So for a veterinary nurse, I think it's a really good opportunity for them to ask key questions about what the fit looked like to check it truly was a fit. The smartphone's been amazing because the smartphone allows you to witness these episodes in real time. So in the past, an owner would come in, they say, my dog's had a fit, seizure, whatever it might be. And an assumption's made, that's exactly what the dog's having. But if you get video footage of what's happening, because we never see them in practice. In fact, I joke that I'm probably the best anti-epileptic device <laughs> there is because I never see a fit in practice. <laughs> so we all need you just at home with just us, me, basically. Yeah, I'll, come and, I'll take myself home with the owners. I've not worked out my charge or hourly rate yet, but we can do that. I don't know you can brand <laughs> me that. That's it. We've got a new treatment from this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but if you can get the owners to, to film the episode, then that helps because the vet, the nurse can look at that in their own time. But the nurse can ask questions such as, well, refer to autonomic science to say, has the dog been salivating? Has it urinated during an episode? If you're getting salivation during an episode, that for me is a surefire hit that it's a seizure. Yeah. If you've got a dog that's moving all four legs very uncontrollably, but remains alert, that's ringing an alarm bell. This might not be a fit. Yeah. And a great example of this would be, again, going back to that busy consultation clinic. Your vet's there 
collecting lots of cases in, lots of vaccinations and the odd vomiting dog here and there, they're really busy running late and the phone call comes through that an owner has a dog that's fitting. And the, the conversation would normally go something along the lines of, my dog's been fitting for the last 20 minutes and hasn't stopped. Yeah. So naturally, the receptionist's taken that call, go, you need to come down straight away. So they pile the dog in the car, they come down, the clinic's full to bursting, and then this Labrador that's been fitting for 20, maybe 30, 40 minutes by the time it arrives, comes running into the waiting room, bouncing around, crazily looking probably the healthiest dog in the waiting room there <laughs> and then. And everyone thinks, what's gone on here? This owner's been lying. And of course, the owner hasn't been lying. Yeah. This dog has clearly had a prolonged episode that was very abnormal, but they've gone straight back to normal very quickly. And when you get a dog that bounces straight back to normal very quickly and, and back to normal consciousness and behaving normally, if they truly were fitting for 20 or 30 minutes, that's not a fit. Yeah. So something else was going on. So your veterinary nurse can take a look at that dog and say, this is a really normal looking dog, given it's been fitting for so long. And that then tells us maybe this isn't epilepsy and to consider other possibilities for what yeah. might be going on. Whereas, of course, if the dog comes in, it looks drunk, confused, blind. It doesn't interact with the other patients yeah. in the waiting room. Yes, a fit is definitely what we're dealing yeah. with. And that's, that can be both things, really. So, yes, it's getting vital information that they can pass back to the rest of the team, the vets that are in charge. But also, if that dog does come bounding in and is quite happy, they can almost immediately reassure the owner that actually your dog is looking well right now. So not to worry so much. And that's great because then you, hopefully it calms the owners. Yeah. So they're ready to get the information they need to know what's happening next. Yeah. It's so difficult delivering information to someone who's panicking. Yeah. I always say if you're in an emergency and you're in a room with a big red button on the wall that everybody can see and you're told to press the big red button in a hurry, you never see it. You look everywhere around, you can't see the big red button. <laughs> you can only see the red button when you're relaxed and calm. So yeah, you want to calm an owner and then deliver the information carefully. Absolutely. Just to summarize, in a, an emergency situation, it's obviously communication with the owner is going to be important. One, in terms of ascertaining what's happened and trying to get the accurate diagnosis, but also to calm them down as well and to give them all of that kind of advice and time for that advice how does that differ do you think when you see them as like a chronic ongoing case so how would your kind of conversation change i guess it's now more about things like quality of life of that pet and the owner obviously we're still going to need to talk about the seizures and their frequency but perhaps more about quality of life now it is quality of life and i think the owners I've said already they need to know what's coming ahead, what's in the future. So I don't mean crystal ball gazing, not that sort of thing, but for the owners to know more fits will happen. And what's that mean for a dog? Now, I think it really helps here to relate it to the human condition of epilepsy, because also commonly you'll find that owner has some form of experience of epilepsy in people, whether it be a relative, a friend, yeah. maybe in the job they do, they come across it. And if they know someone with epilepsy, I'd encourage them to speak to them because if you speak to a person with epilepsy, they'll tell you that it's not a painful condition. There's no pain or discomfort. Owners always worry about pain. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about epilepsy or anything else. Pain is always their number one concern. Yeah. So this isn't painful. And when you speak to a person with epilepsy, when they have a fit, what they'll say is they're completely unaware 
of what's happening in the moment. And so if they're in a room full of people and they have a fit, they're fine. <laughs> They've got no problem yeah. at all. When they come round from the fit, it's everyone else in the room that's panicking and doing things and maybe doing silly things yeah. like putting your hand in their mouth to try and establish an airway. Why would you do that? But in the heat of the moment, people do these silly things and get bitten. So yeah. of course we don't do that for dogs. We keep our hands well away from their mouths. But if you just apply logic to it, it's good to inform an owner that when their dog has a fit, try not to panic. Ensure they're in an area where they're not going to hurt themselves because they're going to be thrashing around, usually at home. Yeah. It's important, I haven't said, but epilepsy always happens at home when a dog's relaxed. It doesn't tend to happen out on walks. Yeah. We don't go out for a walk in the Peak District and see dogs fitting left, right and centre. Yet we know there's a lot of epileptic dogs out there. It's very true, actually. I hadn't thought about that. No, if you're at the playground with your kids pushing them on a swing, you don't tend to see, oh, there's a dog over there having a fit. No. So it's always when they're (laughs) relaxed. So when they're resting at home, early in the morning, late at night, vets covering emergency clinics will be very familiar with the phone calls, whereas vets during the day won't get them so much. It's true. Yeah. It does happen when these dogs are relaxed. And not to worry about treating their dogs normally. They can go out on a walk. They can go about their daily routine. But when they are fitting in the house, move the furniture out of the way, make sure they don't hurt themselves. And maybe if it's a bright room, dim the lights and just be ready to be there for your dog when they come round. And a concern for a lot of owners is the behaviour following the seizure. Yeah. And I've come across a few situations now quite frequently where the seizure is a worry. Of course it is for the owners, but it's the behaviour following the fit that can be a concern. The behaviour, typically, we will see ataxia, so a drunken gait, blindness potentially, all fairly transient, hopefully lasting no more than five, 10 minutes, but it will be longer if the seizure's been going on for longer. But the big one is aggression. Yeah. Dogs come around really disorientated and they will show aggression. Now that's probably fear aggression. It could be the brain doing things. It's hard to explain exactly why that happens, Mm -hmm. but it occurs. And so owners can find themselves in quite a threatening situation with their beloved pet. I think all you can say in that situation is just try and keep away from your dog. Allow it to be in an enclosed room just to come around. And hopefully after five, 10 minutes, they'll be better. But it's when children and other vulnerable family members are present, that is a big concern. And we can't treat post-ictal signs. We can only manage seizure activity. So the fewer seizures you have, the less this aggression will be seen. So it all comes back down to the medication Yeah, we can do to help with that. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Picking up on what you said about them being outside, can we still enjoy our walks? Can we still go out for the day? Can we still do all of these things? And I think we don't want to see epilepsy as a life sentence for these dogs. We're all here for them to have a good quality of life at the end of the day. Absolutely. And I think there's two things I'd add there. But the first one would be, I've said that I'm a good anti-epileptic medication. My second top tip here is taking dogs for a walk is a great anti-epileptic strategy. It's not endorsed by anybody other than myself. It is only my opinion. (laughs) But I think taking a dog out on a walk, if they are about to have a fit, as long as you've not caught it too late, I think it can offset that seizure for a bit. Importantly, I think it offsets it rather than prevents it. Okay. But going out on a walk is a great activity to do. I would be very happy to do it. And then the second point would be dogs with epilepsy. They are really normal dogs otherwise. So they, they can go about a normal life. I can think of dogs I've treated where there are sniffer dogs. They sniff out drugs and do all that brilliantly. Yeah. But their life's interspersed with the odd fit here and there. 
they're on medication, they're managed, yeah. they have a great quality of life, and they're doing a brilliant service. Yeah. So that should be enough for these owners that are faced with a diagnosis of idiopathic epilepsy, that actually their dog should have a good quality of life. Yeah. It almost doesn't make sense to me, though, because when I think about seizure activity, it's almost described as too much activity. So why then stimulating them and going out for a walk and getting them to hear things and do things? And how does that stave it off? That's just fascinating to me. I guess we don't know. And we don't know. Give me a think, tricky question. <laughs> no, I think it's a really fair question. And I think it's important to say, it's all right. If, so if you literally see your dog about to go into a fit, this strategy isn't going to work. You're yeah. already too late. So I think if you're getting the aura of signs that a fit's about to come on, it's too late. But I think just distracting a dog with other activities, it just, it's a way of allowing the body to function normally and it, it stops it happening. But yeah, I have to be honest to say, we don't know why it works. And it's not proven. Either. This is my view, but it seems to work well. So your two treatments that you're advocating here is you and going out for a walk. It's great. So much. You'll be out of business as a company. I, if we're you going do these. to be, aren't we? Why did we invite you again? <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. On the flip side of that, though, is it true that stressful environments, so vet visits and things like that, increase the risk of seizures? I think that's a concern of people's, whether that be vets or owners. I just use the word people there. Is that true? Do you see that? Yeah, it's, it's quite rare. And seizures happen more commonly in relaxed environments. But there's absolutely no question. We come across the odd patient that it clearly, the fit has a clear stressful trigger. So going into a vet, we'll have dogs that maybe require some kind of sedative or anti-epileptic medication before arriving to try and offset that fit. It is rare and it's not a common finding, but it does occur. And other fits they're called reflex seizures. They're seizures that happen in response to a stimulus. So there was a dog I saw once that it was going outside that actually triggered a seizure. It was remarkably reliable. So that dog I wouldn't have taken for a walk to no. stop the fit. <laughs> but they'd go out and the light outside would just trigger a seizure. But take them out at night time and it was fine. And noise. Noise is another one that can trigger off epilepsy in dogs and cats. It's often not the kind of noises you'd think. I'm not talking loud banging noises. I'm okay. talking subtle noises. And in cats in particular, it can be keys, the jangling of keys. Oh, or the rustling of something. Or... You've got it. And banging a fork against a ceramic bowl. Well, banging is a strong word. Gently tapping yeah. would trigger these things. So there are definitely... I wonder whether it's to do with sound waves or something like that. What's and in that? cats, it's fascinating because it's older cats that tend to get it, usually in the second decade of life. And... Half of the cats that get this are actually deaf, which is unbelievable. That's even more remarkable. So these <laughs> This cats... is blowing my mind, Mark. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. <laughs> it blew my mind and I can't explain it. But I think sometimes it is. There's, it's the frequency of the sound in particular. So it's not shouting or being loud that's triggering. It's a subtle sound that maybe still the wavelength is such that it's still detected in these deaf patients. But yeah, it's that's a real can of worms, some of these seizure triggers. And it comes back to that really awful answer of we don't know. Yeah. But if an owner knows we don't know, we're being honest. We're being open. We're being honest. And I think that's really vital to help that relationship and help work through the difficult situation of epilepsy. Yeah. And so how often, again, something I see on these Facebook groups is how has anyone been able to find a trigger for their pet seizure? How often do you think that we'll find those i know that's really difficult to try and put a number to but 
do you think owners should be like, I get the feeling some of them are fixated sometimes on trying to find a trigger or a, a cause for that seizure. I was under the impression most of them are just spontaneous. We don't know when they're going to happen, unpredictable, but perhaps there are some triggers in some. Could you put a number to those or is that really difficult? A number is hard, but I think it's fair to say it's really rare we find a trigger. Now, I don't think that's because we're not looking. Owners are very good at noting when the fits were, seeing if there's a relationship with feeding, with activity, with time of day. And I'd encourage them to do that because sometimes it does allow us to find out what's happening. A great case I can think of that I saw a number of years ago now was a dog that always had a fit at half past seven on a Thursday morning, every week, reliably. So there's a clear pattern, but why? And so the owners didn't know why at all. We treated the dog with medication. It didn't seem to make any difference. But then they moved house. And when they moved house, it happened at 10 o'clock on a Tuesday morning. Oh my and goodness, it was always I feel like it's the bin men or something like that. How did you know? I know, I just was trying to think of something that happened <laughs> every week. Exactly... Sorry, I've taken your thunder away there. No, it's fantastic, but it's things like that. So it was, it, the bin men arrived at the house. It was stressful for the dog and it triggered a fit. So silly things like that. And it, it was only the move of house that made them realize there is something here. What's the same in both situations? It's clearly not time of day. There's something happening at that so time of day. How are they ever going to avoid that? They're just going to have to put their bins somewhere else. They, they had to go to the skip themselves. Oh, just, no. just go and empty their own bins. Oh, the things we do for our dogs. <laughs> <laughs> this is all really great information, but I'm just wondering how we're ever going to do this, <laughs> going back to the very beginning. How are we going to do it in such a short consultation time? What are the kind of key points that you would want to bring out? So when you've got the owner in the consult and you've got a very short period of time, there are key points you always have to mention. And it doesn't matter who the owner is, what the dog's doing. I think it's important to bring these across. Now you could provide this in a resource somewhere, a little leaflet, downloadable, PDF, whatever the owners need. For me, I've said it already, but the number one thing is to say epilepsy is a chronic progressive disorder. These dogs aren't going to be fixed. We will talk about medication later on, but medication, and we're all guilty of it, we tend to use the word treatment. Yes, I'm guilty of that for sure. When we say we're treating epilepsy, I personally feel if I was an owner listening to a vet telling me they're going to treat my dog's epilepsy, that I'm going to somehow get a cure. Or you're going to fix it. We're going to fix it and we can't fix it. So it's important to use, I try and use the word management. I think it's a more appropriate term. It's more understandable. And it sets expectations. But epilepsy is going to continue. So the aim of managing seizures with medication is not to cure the seizures. It's to try and get them under some form of control. A quick fix is really unlikely. And an owner will have to expect to have fairly frequent visits to the vets to get some modicum of control. That's really important. It's not just going to be a course of medication and then stop. No, and I've known that. Dogs will be prescribed phenobarbital. They'll go away for two weeks with a two-week course of phenobarbital. And because the owner hasn't understood, it's not, the, it's not the vet's fault. It's because probably that owner was very stressed in the moment. They've done it for two weeks. They've stopped the medication. And then we know what goes on then. We get withdrawal seizures. The whole situation gets worse. So owners need to know any medication you give is lifelong. I think it's also important to say that adverse effects from the medication are really, really common. So all anti-epileptic medication, despite what anybody says, will have some form of side effect. 
Now, hopefully that's mild and it's tolerable to the owners and it's tolerable to the dog. But we know that there are some dogs that are a bit more susceptible to those adverse effects than others. And if you've got a dog with loads and loads of fits, owners will tolerate more side effects than those dogs that maybe just have one fit every six to 12 weeks. So it is a lot. Yeah. So owners need to know that sort of thing too. And I think making sure owners know not to stop medication suddenly in yeah. any circumstance. You can stop medication, but it really needs to be done under veterinary guidance and carefully and ideally slowly. There will be situations when it needs to be stopped suddenly if there are terrible adverse effects, life-threatening adverse effects, but that's really rare. Phenobarbital is a very safe medication. I think it's got a lot of bad press. I say vets seem to, I'm going to include myself in this, I'm quite happy to give out steroids quite frequently. I'm a neurologist, that's yeah. what I do. <laughs> so steroids are given out frequently and almost, dare I say it, like sweets. Whereas phenobarbital, people are a lot more reserved and concerned by. And I don't know why, because I feel phenobarbital is a much safer medication. It's so true. I've never thought about it like that. But I'm nodding my head vigorously over here. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's important for vets to understand that, yes, they are worried prescribing phenobarbital due to its safety profile, but actually it's much much better than other routinely used medications in practice. I'd want to make that point so people are aware. Perfect. And I think actually we're going to pick up on measurements and management and things like that of phenobarbital in our next episode as well, I think. I can't wait. I know, same. Thank you, Mark. I think that's probably all we've got time for in this first episode, but it has been really great speaking with you and finding out what we can learn from, the, from these experts. Hopefully our listeners have found it as fascinating as I have. Those triggers that we were talking about is really fascinating for me. And please tune in to our next episode where we were moving on to the second instalment of the SMART approach, which is measure. So hopefully we can pick back up that conversation that we maybe just alluded to where it comes to phenobarbital, adverse effects and monitoring and things like that as well. Obviously, we'll be joined once again by Mark to discuss the importance of managing our epileptic patients. Thanks again, Mark. Thanks, Emma. Thanks. See you soon.